Welcome to History City, the story of the second most important place in England. Possibly. I'm Guy Morgan, and we're travelling from the end of the last ice age to the present day. First, let the spirit of York fill us in on what's happened so far. By the middle of the 11th century, Jorvik is a thriving urban centre for trade as well as manufacturing. It's no longer a separate kingdom, but part of England, although it still has a sense of its own individual identity. But being part of England means that York can't help becoming involved in family arguments. I'm standing by Germany Beck, on the edge of a newly built housing estate in the suburbs of York. It's here because a few years ago, local residents lost the second Battle of Fulford while trying to preserve the site of the first one. That tale involves vicious Vikings, a fleet of ships riding in on a high tide, and a lot of bloodshed. It takes place because two brothers have fallen out very badly. They're not just any brothers. One was the former Earl of Northumbria, Tostig, who used to live here. The other just happens to be Harold, King of England, who has other invaders on his mind. The date of all this might sound familiar. 1066. How did we get here? And why is York so important? Well, York was the centre of government in the north of England um, and was mainly controlled by the Earls of Northumbria on behalf of the Crown, if you like. But there was always the possibilities of turbulence because the northern thanes, if you like, the northern aristocracy, to give it a modern name, weren't always sympathetic to the regime in the south. And in 1065, that's coming to a little bit of a head. My name is Sarah Rees-Jones, and I'm a Professor Emeritus of Medieval History at the University of York. And for people who don't know what Professor Emeritus is... It means I'm retired. (laughs) (laughs) But you have written a book called York, which covers from the Norman Conquest to the Black Death. Yes, its full title is York, the Making of a City, 1068 to 1350. And I suppose I published this about a decade ago now. So I brought a copy with me. (laughs) Excellent. We may have to refer to it. Yes, we may. (laughs) There's an awful lot of family stuff, despite England being supposedly unified yes it's still very regional and those regions seem to be dominated by different families and the big one the one that we Mm. hear about is wessex yes and that is the godwins or godwins that's the godwins and they try and install a family member who's going to be loyal to them Um, who is this ruler called Tostig, who's um, installed in the north of England. But then there's a local rebellion among the local thanes against him. But he's already been in charge of York and Northumbria for Mm. ten years. Mm. What is it about Tostig that people don't like? Um, I think it is partly that he is not part of the local elite. He's not part of the kind of local uh, group of thanes who control Yorkshire and the north. He has been you know, implanted, if you like, from the south and is seen a little bit as an outsider in 1065 and he's deposed and sent into exile and then decides to reinvade together with Harald Hardrada, the king of Norway. 
Previous autumn in 1065, there was a rising here in the north where they ousted their Earl of over 10 years, uh, Earl Tostig, who was the, the younger brother of Harold Godwinson, the future I mean, three months hence, would actually be King Harold II of England. My name is Chaz Jones. Um, I'm the chap who has led the project to look for the 1066 Battle of Fulford, which we knew nothing about when we started looking. And uh, one of the things that were a product of this uh, project was not only the finding of that battlefield, but also we produced the Battle of Fulford Tapestry. Which is right here which is right beside us, done in the style of the, the Bayer Tapestry, copying its iconography, copying its shape and size, um, and endeavouring to tell, obviously in a slightly simplified form, very much based upon the surviving um, sagas uh, of what actually happened during the battle. So Tostig is exiled. The person that is chosen to come in and take his place is Earl Morker, who's the younger brother of the Earl of Mercia. They're making sure that, that when they to stand up to the, the danger of, of Wessex, they now have both Mercia and Northumbria united together, potentially to stand against Wessex. Tostig, is, is, at that time, was actually hunting with King Edward the Confessor when this happens. He then appeals and says, send my brother to go and put me back into my earldom. Harold then goes off and quite what happens there we don't know, but I think very sensibly he realised that trying to lead a, a Wessex army against Northumbria and, and Mercia is at very best going to completely weaken England and lead it very vulnerable to attack when we knew that Edward the Confessor was not long for this world. It was going to leave the country very vulnerable and one side or the other would ally with the Norsemen or with the Normans or the people from Flanders and England would be conquered. So England would lose its independence. So Harold, who has a good record as, as quite a statesman, and his sister writes very favourably about how wise he was. Um, he, he chooses to negotiate, and, but part of this negotiation means, well, two things. One is that Tostig is going to have to go and live abroad for a while, go into exile. Now, for Tostig, this isn't such a hardship because he is he's, he's married to Judith of Flanders, so he has a good base already abroad. The second key thing that comes out of this is Harold, he agrees to marry the sister of the Northern Earls. So we now have the potential that the next generation, assuming this is a fertile marriage, that the two houses, the Northern House and the Southern House, are going to be combined and the children are going to be kings and queens of all England. So I think this was the deal, I think this is what Harold saw as the better solution than having a battle which would lead basically to the downfall of all of their, their houses. But Tostig's not having any of that, is he? Tostig is very unhappy, very unhappy, particularly when he sends to tell his brother, when his brother is made king, to say, am I coming back now? And uh, uh, we don't know the details of this, but it's very clear that, that, that he was told, no, no, stay there, no, we'll work all this out. Tostig's not having any of this. Tostig has already worked out a better plan because he is married to Judith of Flanders. Judith herself commands a, a reasonable army there in Flanders. But uh, most importantly, Judith was brought up with is the same age as closely related to Matilda, who is now married to William. And these are two very powerful, very canny political players. 
I mean, being in Flanders, you know, you're a small country, you had to be very canny in order to survive. So they probably played a major role with Tostig in realising that they could come up with really quite a cunning plan. So Tostig is doing a lot of politicking on the continent. He's already probably done a deal with William because William has ambitions and uh, claim. William I think he has a strong claim and I think it was the the understanding that the earls had suddenly realised that this was the consequence and that was another thought behind Harold saying to the young earls look if we don't do this if we don't do a deal together we are going to end up with William on the throne of England. And Harold knew William quite well. Harold knew William quite well because of the little adventure a few years before where he'd gone on this hawking expedition. So William and Tostig have reached an agreement. Tostig then, he kind of goes on tour, doesn't he? But a carefully choreographed tour. He first of all goes along the south coast, goes to his family possessions in the Isle of Wight and collects some stuff. But Tostig goes north, stops off in Denmark, doesn't get any joy there. Doesn't get any joy there goes on to Norway and meets Harald Hadrada, who is a tough old bird. It's someone who's got a lot of experience as being head of the bodyguard for the emperor in Constantinople, made himself extremely rich, gone back, claimed the throne of Norway, and he has ambitions as well. And Tostig and he decide to come to the north. Things are falling apart for Harold Ardrada, his days are numbered. So when he is offered this plan by Tostig, it would be only a matter of a year or so before there was another civil war in, in Norway and Ardrada would have been ousted. I mean, he was already an old man. They would eventually have been killed. So moving across to England was probably, right at that particular time, was probably quite a smart move. And it took out of the equation a lot of his old warriors really was sort of plan B as far as Tostig was concerned. So Tostig and Harald Hardrada arrive separately. Separately. Tostig goes and then does his raiding up the east coast which is a very well structured raiding. I mean what I see is a very clever military thing. Attack people at the periphery, stretch the army, make them go this way, make them go that way, make them go the other way. The other thing to remember is that Tostig, for more than 10 years, being Earl of Northumbria, actually lived just outside York in Fulford. He lived in Fulford. It's documented in the, the Doomsday Survey that that was, that was his hall. And this becomes very important in the, in the battle because so they set out from Scotland. They then sail down the coast. I think that it's most likely that Harold Hardrada sort of sailed right on straight into the Humber, but while Tostig landed and starts to distract the young earls, who will start to think, hey, we've got to rush off to the coast and start defending Scarborough, we've got to start defending Holderness, and that would have been a very clever distraction to do because Tostig and, and Harold Ardrada knew what their plan was, which was to head down to, uh, into the Humber, where this exceptional tide, and this is so important, it cannot be overemphasized, the tide is critical at this stage. And you make the point that Tostig lived at Fulford, so he knew about the effect of this tidal bore, which sees the river going from being a trickle to being you know, nine metres high in a matter of sort of 10, 15 minutes. It, it's, it's a wonder to behold. You can't see it now there. You can see it further down below the locked neighbour. You can still witness it to this day. But that used to flood all the way up into York. 
they judge this right and then on the eve of the battle it's not Tostig that appears at Fulford, but it's Harold Andrada. And we even know the, where he'd stayed the night before. And again, from an archaeological point of view, it's very important that you then do the sums and you work out the speed of the river, the distance they've got to cover. And the first tidal surge would have taken them from Humber to this place just south of Selby, a place called Brighton. Breton. Um, and from there, the next tide, if they got on it as it came through in the morning, about 60 ships, no more than 60 ships, could have caught the tide um, in, in the time that it was going past. If you allow that you're going to leave some space between each ship, you could have got about 60 ships into it at that stage. As dusk is approaching, they suddenly appear at Fulford, and they beach at Fulford, at Water Fulford, right beside Tostig's Hall. The high tide allows them to pull their boats up, you know, get their boats up nice and high. Meanwhile in York, they witness this and they see this art, this thing arriving. They can't do anything about it because the tide is so high, it's like a massive hundreds of metre wide moat, so they can't attack them. But they then have to think how they're going to attack. Because at Fulford, you've got the, the east and the west bank of, of the ooze there, and they could stay on land just from Fulford and walk up on the east side, or they could cross over at the very low tide, they could just put a few boats together, form a, a bridge, and have come across and attacked York from the land side. The response of this by the young brother earls is a very tactically sensible one. They deploy one of the armies onto the West Bank, to, to what, roughly speaking, um, Middlethorpe Ings, to oppose the, the army at, encamped at Fulford. And that's how it happens, that's, that's the night before. And what we find is, geologically, lots of arrows scattered along the side. So clearly the, the Mercians were persuading them to stay away from the river. Battlefields are tough, particularly at this era, because as Chaz will have talked to you about, you get a lot of non-specific metal. He thinks he has a, quite a lot of battle-specific stuff. But a lot of battle paraphernalia at this point, weapons, armor, things like that, is going to be purposefully melted down afterwards for, for reuse and things like that. I'm Alexandra McLean. I'm a lecturer in the archaeology department at the University of York. Medieval archaeology generally, but particularly uh, churches and grave monuments and the archaeology of the north. So battlefields are really difficult archaeologically until you start getting gunshot. Um, and then you can see very distinct, I'm not the person to talk to you about this, but you can see very distinct patterns of how a battle played out and things like that once you've got that. It's one of the reasons why battlefields, and I'm sure Chaz will <coughs> talk to you about this, about how they are um, some of the least protected archaeological sites. And it's because they're very, very hard to define, um, particularly early on about where the area of archaeological interest is, where the area of archaeological value that should be protected is, um, because they're hard to, to plot in the landscape. The following day, at dawn, if you imagine the, the, the down at, at Rickle, the other half of the army with Earl Tostig that's been raiding down through Hull, they're a kind of a, a day's journey behind. So they only get as far as Rickle. But at Rickle, they're able to beach a much larger force. So that's where the base is set up. And it's a three hour, three and a half hour stomp. Basically up the A19, isn't it? Towards Selby, yeah. I've walked it many times. It takes just over three hours to get from there. It would be lighted about seven o'clock. So it would have been about 10 o'clock before they started to appear. You can't attack Hadrada at first light because it's full of water again. And it then sits there and very slowly starts to ebb. And it's going to be midday at the earliest before it's possible for, to, to even contemplate getting from one side of the river to the other. During that hour, couple of hours, 
Suddenly, from the defender's point of view, from the Northumbrian's point of view, suddenly nowhere Tostig is. He's not out in Holderness raiding. He's suddenly turning up there, and you've got Hardrada's army already camped there. So you have two armies facing you. Yes, you've got two armies as well, but where are the Mercians going to be? I mean, which side are they going to be attacked from? So they're wrong-footed. When it becomes clear uh, Hardrada has no intention of cracking across the river, You've got Tostig's army and Hardrada's army. Both are going to focus on the Northumbrians. A small contingent of the Mercians, those probably with horses, are able to, to leave, gallop all the way back into York, gallop all the way up the other side and try and block the side of the river. And they are probably the ones that really bring the news of what's happening because just the lay of the land means that the Mercians wouldn't have seen Tostig arrive. It was really Earl Edwin who brought the news and said, hey brother, we've got a problem because we're both going to face this army together. And that was when Edwin went to try and block the crossing point right down by the river. And this is all really, I mean, specifically described in, in the literature where, where the Mercian army was uh, and where the Northumbrian army was. And that was where the, the, they are attacked by um, Hardrada's men. The chap who is watching from the other side, uh, who's giving a much better description, uh, this chap Hemming, uh, he describes the fact that he's led by, um, he's called Ore, but he's also the guy who at Stamford Bridge, he's the guy that leads the reserve army on a charge to try and get to Stamford Bridge to try and rescue Harold Hardrada and Tostig at Stamford Bridge. It's known as, in, it described in the saga as Ore's Storm. They charge across there, but um, um, they're unsuccessful. The battle itself, who does what to whom? It's a battle of manoeuvre. So, Act 1, young Morcar goes down, they know where this Roman road is, where there's firm footing, and they go storming down, and all the, everything, the Norse sagas, the English sagas say, he is advancing bravely, he is pushing Tostig back, the weaker troops of Tostig are being pushed back. This means that their whole army is being drawn down the slope, down into the, into the boggy area, the water is gradually receding. Once that's happened, Harold Andrada then shows his hand and he then, he then comes right down beside the river. He then forces a crossing there where it's only opposed by this small contingent of Mercians that have managed to get, managed to get round there and deployed, deployed down there. The advantage is all with the attackers beside the river because the river has drained there quicker. It's, it's, it's much muddier still on the side of the defenders. This is all a matter of timing, perfect timing. And the first thing that this advancing force of uh, Earl Morcar will know about it is that suddenly they're being poked in the ribs by behind by this Norse army that's managed to get across the river. They didn't know about this before. They couldn't see them. They've come up there. The, the Norse army was completely out of sight. So it's a pincer movement. It's, it, it's an outflanking movement, both of those. The uh, Morcar's army advancing, come down the slope. Meanwhile, Vikings have got across the river. They've come up the slope. They're now coming in completely behind and, and surrounding uh, Earl Morcar at the forward. Earl Morcar's men, and again, this is really well described by uh, this, this source, Hemming, who then describes how Morcar does a great job of pivoting his army to face the new threat, forms them up into a new line, and they begin to retreat. All of the Norse sources report that, that Morcar is killed because he left his banner there, but I think his guys said, you stay, you know, we'll keep the banner here, they'll think that they're winning, you meanwhile scootle off, and, and there's, again, 
uh, some of the sagas describe them going to a place where they couldn't be attacked. They retreated along to a place. It's only about 100 meters further away. And this place, archaeologically and landscape, had already been identified as something that sort of fitted, that would allow them to reorganize and allow Morkar to escape. And it was only later, it was only some years later, we got the translation which said, actually described them going to this location. So Morkar was then able to have a quick reorganize, realize that it was lost, that there's nothing they could do, realizing that the, the new tide was going to come flushing back in fairly soon. So at that stage, they kind of dropped their weapons and ran for their lives because the Vikings, by this stage, more and more of them were arriving from Rickle, more and more of them were coming onto the battlefield, and they knew that if they didn't scarper quickly, they would all be destroyed. And that's where we find all this massive evidence for recycled weapons. We find all these hearths and stuff on this, what we call the retreat field. And what happens to York? York, we only know for sure a few days later when, when the York people officially surrender, they submit and, and they agree to provide hostages to, to Harold Ardrada. There are a whole series of graves with, with, all, with clear battle injuries dated to 1066, just outside the, the gate, on the, 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 the southern gate of uh, York. And so we did a Viking force turn up there and try and force their way straight into the city. Quite possibly were these people who were coming off the battlefield and trying to limp back to York to, to get some first aid. Yeah, that's another possibility. Um, but anyway, there are these, I think, 13 bodies were found there. So not a, not a major cemetery, but that would suggest there was some fighting outside the city of York. But this force would have stopped any army, say the Mercians, would have stopped them trying to get back into York. If they tried to come back into York, they'd have found that there were some, already some Vikings trying to stop them getting back inside there. The city wasn't sacked, which would have been quite a normal thing to happen. I mean, Hardrada, I mean, obviously this was Tostig's, had been the ruler here, so Tostig, probably part of the deal was, don't sack the city, because I want to get in there and I want to exact my own revenge. Um, Hardrada had a much more statesman-like thing. He wanted these people to be part of his new army and wanted to get their loyalty so they could go south and, and conquer the rest of the country. That was what the agreement was that the York submitted to on the Sunday. They agreed that they would go south and help to conquer the rest of the land. Um, but they then went off to Stamford Bridge to collect the hostages. But they only took a small number to, to Stamford Bridge. And they'd gone there with their bows and arrows to do some hunting. They said that it was too hot to take their armour with them. So they hadn't gone. They'd left quite a large contingent at Rickall. So the army was, was very well spread around. And they'd almost certainly, there are about four different bridges that they would have wanted to secure. So basically York isn't occupied because Harold Hadrada's forces are very thinly spread. Yes. And King Harold, as he is now, mm. surprises them at Stamford Bridge. He comes up collecting troops, but presumably with his yeah. own bodyguard, arrives, and he's up against the King of Norway, who's a pretty tough nut, mm. and his own brother. Mm. How does that go? Well, Harold takes the day, which is in a way rather remarkable because he's come up with this southern army, with these southern forces at speed um, and probably caught Harold Hardrada's forces and Tostig's forces by surprise. They're probably not expecting that kind of reaction. And they're routed at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Harold is successful, but then, of course, uh, he has to get back to the south. He goes back to the south, I think... A lot of people have heard about the Battle of Hastings and will know the results, so there's not a spoiler there. No. 
that William the Conqueror beats Harold. Harold appears to have been shot in the eye with an arrow, according mm. to the Bayer Tapestry. And so you've suddenly got a Norman king. Would you say that William actually had a reasonable claim to the English throne? Well, that's heavily debated, isn't it? But um, he certainly insisted that he had a claim and, importantly, it was given backing by the Pope at the time so that he could project his mission as a righteous mission. Um, and then, you know, he wins at Hastings and he goes on, he's crowned in Westminster. It's acclaimed by the citizens of London, uh, Christmas 1066. Now, who puts the crown on his head? It's Eadred, I think, Archbishop of York. That's a strong York connection, isn't it? So yeah, so I mean, it's, it's, it's a clever thing to do to get Eadred to perform the coronation. And as I understand it, William comes up north fairly quickly, presumably to try and smooth things over with everybody and say, you know, business as usual, I just happen to be your new king. What happens in York and the north that where it kind of starts to go wrong? Well, when William comes up here, he has two new castles constructed, one on either side of the River Ouse, and installs a garrison. But that isn't the end, that's really just the beginning, because quite soon after that, northern forces have been gathering in the north and in Scotland as well. And as soon as William has left... There is a major attack launched on the city of York and those castles are taken and the garrisons are, are killed. And that is possibly a big shock to William in a sense that he hasn't been able to take over the north quite so easily. You should never take the north for granted. But he's going to be back, this time with some heavily armed men and a grudge. It's not going to be good news for York. After all, what would you expect from someone who was known as William the Bastard? My thanks to Professor Sarah Rees-Jones, whose book, York, The Making of a City, 1068-1350, is published by Oxford University Press. To Chas Jones, his book, The Forgotten Battle of 1066, Fulford, is available on Amazon and to Alexandra McLean, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University of York. The Spirit of York is Alison Willis. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Guy Morgan, of Soundstage North. For links to further information, please look at our show notes. And if you enjoyed the programme, why not write a review on your podcast provider's site? It helps spread the word. Thanks for listening to History City, and we hope you can join us next time.